0: Ever get the feeling that we're constantly being tested, assessed, measured, compared? I'll give you some examples. I, I recently uh, received in the mail this little device from my insurance agent. He said, if I, if I put it in my car, it, it will record my driving habits, and, and I could. Uh, see a reduction, a savings in my insurance premiums, premiums if I'm a good driver. Well, Kelly says I drive like an old man, so I thought, what do I have to lose? I put it in my car. After a month of driving, it told me that I'm a B-minus driver. A B-minus, I'm a great driver. A B-minus, I don't, I don't think so or not too long ago, actually right about the time the pandemic started, I, I went and had my eyes examined so I could get a new pair of glasses. They told me just how far off my vision is from the perfect, the ideal, 2020, and, and how much worse it is than the last time. The last time I had a physical, the doctor reminded me that, that my weight is above the ideal, as are my blood sugars and my cholesterol levels over and over and over we're we're told that we don't quite meet the mark we're reminded of our of our imperfections it just seems like always everywhere that message comes you aren't quite perfect when our kids go to school when we went to school we received letter grades remember we were we were tested Uh, We were evaluated whether we could move to the next grade, whether we could graduate, and then, of course, what kind of university or college we might attend. Once you start working, your employer often does annual evaluations, scoring your job performance. We have credit scores. We go to the doctor for, for medical tests, and over and over and over, unless you're a really rare individual, those tests remind us, even when we do well, that we could do better, that we're just not quite perfect. Then, of course, there's all the messages that come through social media and and magazines and and Hollywood, Uh, the standards of what actually is perfect, how to be happy, how to be successful, how to be fit, how to be beautiful, how to be well-liked, well-balanced, well-adjusted how to be popular, how to be in fashion, how to be a good husband, a good citizen, a good wife, a good son, a good daughter, a good friend. And I think if we're going to be entirely honest, Christianity often adds to the problem. I I don't mean faith in Jesus. I mean Christianity, the, the church. Oftentimes in religion, there's a lot of a lot of shoulds. Should is my least favorite word. Should implies that, that we ought to be doing something that we're not. You should be in worship every week. You should give more to the church than you do. You should use your talents. You should uh, attend a Sunday school class, or you should attend the latest Bible study, or you should be aware of all the latest social issues and how they relate to spirituality. You should be in a men's group. You should be in a women's group. A good, a good husband should take his wife on a date once a week. A good parent, a Christian parent, should spend time with their kids one-on-one. You, you should have a mentor. You should be a mentor. You see, it just goes on and on. At one point, I, I, I thought about this. I thought, there's not enough hours in the day there's not enough days in the week to be a good Christian. We end up layering on this sense of guilt that you're just not doing enough. And if we're going to be honest, I mean, there, there's, there are evaluators out there in the world, all around us. Some we know, some we don't. But oftentimes, the, the one that has the highest standard, the highest standard for us, is us. Sometimes our our harshest critic is is ourselves. I often am my my harshest critic. I'm the one most aware of my flaws and my failings. The truth is we always, it seems, feels like we come up short. Now maybe, maybe you don't feel that way, but I think a lot of us do. Uh, there's a there's kind of a, a famous saying by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. He says, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. He, of course, is talking about, you know, the wood that you would use to, to build a house. A carpenter might use to build a house or a, or a piece of furniture. And, and, of course, it's ideal if you can have a, a straight board. Well, to have a straight board, you need a, a straight tree if, if it's crooked if it's twisted if it's out of shape it's just it's just hard to use and what Kant is saying is that that's who humans are that few of us are as straight as as you would think that we should be that more of us are crooked <laughs> some of us more crooked than others what, what are you going to do with a crooked tree what are you going to do with a crooked limb what, what are you going to do with a crooked board But here's the interesting thing, if you take even that that really twisted, crooked tree branch, if you put it in the hands of someone creative, maybe an artist, they might actually be able to use it for something extraordinary. If I were to ask any of you today what you believe to be the most famous, the most... uh, favorite loved hymn of all time, I suspect all of us would probably name uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was written a, a 250 years ago, and it has consistently been a worldwide favorite, sung in, in countless churches, in, in every generation, and in many languages. Just, just think of the impact of Amazing Grace, not just in the church, but even in the culture. Everybody knows the, the words and the tune. Think, think of how many people have been impacted by the words of that song. Uh, of course, Amazing Grace was written by uh, an Anglican, uh, a Britishman named John Newton. I, I just want you to imagine what it must have been like for for him to write something that became so popular. Actually, Newton wrote hundreds of hymns. You you don't know the others, probably, but but this one. And imagine if if he could know now the impact that hymn has had on people of Christian faith. Imagine if if you could could compose or write or, or create or invent something that would have such lasting power And have such a a way of touching people's hearts through the centuries. Imagine what that would feel like. But there's actually more to John Newton's story. Long before he wrote that hymn, and long before he became a a clergyman, he was a ship captain, and not just any kind of ship captain. John Newton was the captain of a ship that transported slaves from the African continent to the Americas and the transatlantic slave trade. I'm uh, sure from the history books and from stories you know how horrific that was. Uh, men and women in Africa were captured, ripped from their homes, ripped from their families, ripped from their cultures, put in chains, put below deck on ships to to be transported across the Atlantic. It was a a trip that often would take five or six weeks. Sometimes they would go through terrible storms and they say that the conditions below deck were horrific. On the average transatlantic trip, nearly 25% of the captured slaves would die and would be tossed overboard as, as trash. And John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was the ship captain. He saw firsthand the conditions those those slaves were forced in. He saw their suffering. He watched as they were tossed overboard. He profited from the, the slave trade. He knew that he was participating in something that was inhumane. One time upon, uh, on the ship, they, they encountered a, a storm. It, it appeared that the, the whole ship was going to go down. And after that experience, Newton came to, to know Christ in a much deeper way. It, it awoke something in him spiritually. That eventually led to, uh, to a deeper faith and to a call to ministry and him leaving the slave trade, leaving being a captain of a ship and becoming a pastor And then, of course, as a pastor, he wrote the hymn that we know, Amazing Grace. He also, many years later, wrote an abolitionist pamphlet where he told about his own conversion and his past experience and his opposition to the slave trade. And in it, he says, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I mean, We know that, that even as he penned the words to amazing grace, he felt a level of guilt and shame for participating in the slave trade, the suffering, the, the dehumanization of others. I want you to imagine for a moment feeling such shame for those years of his life. And I also want you to imagine being someone like John Newton, that even from his failures, even from his, his dark past, God would work through him to produce something so eternal, so deeply meaningful as the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, and blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Those words remind me of a quote from Corey Tinboom, who said, No pit is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to be. You see, that's who God is. That's the God that we worship when we gather at times like this. A God that can take someone like John Newton, the captain, slave trader, and transform him to become not only a pastor, but the author of of a hymn of beautiful theological significance, amazing grace. And God does that in countless lives. God does that in all of our lives. God enters into our darkness, the things that the world tells us ought to shame us. Uh, The places where we feel we don't measure up. And God's grace does something Beautiful. That is who God is. When God looks down upon us, God does not look through the lens of our imperfection. Rather, God looks at us with grace. When God looks upon us, God doesn't see us defined by our failings. God sees what's possible by grace. Pope John Paul II once said, We are not, not the sum of our weaknesses and failures. We are the sum of the Father's love for us and our real capacity to become the image of his Son, Jesus. Now, now don't get me wrong. The Bible is extraordinarily honest about our flaws and our failings. The word for that is sin. The Bible doesn't pull any punches when talking about our sin, When when the Bible assesses what's wrong with humanity and the world, the word it uses is sin. Why is the world so messed up? Sin, the fall. Why did God send his son to save us from sin? Why did Jesus have to die a sacrificial death on the cross? Because of our sinfulness. Over and over, the Bible reminds us just how far short We are from God's glorious standards and God's greater expectation for us. But at just the moment, you might expect that God's response to our shortcomings, that God's response to our sinfulness might be wrath or judgment or condemnation. God surprises us. And we encounter God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness. The prevailing theme of Scripture is God's grace. Grace is God's response. Grace is God's answer. Grace is God's antidote for all that is flawed within us. I want you to hear again our our Scripture reading for today from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his good will and plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given us so freely. Through the Son whom he loves. We have been ransomed, or or another word, is rescued. We've been rescued through his son's blood. We have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured out over us with wisdom and understanding. Well, that that is a rich passage, and it's a dense passage. It's just Packed with theological meaning. I just want to lift out four words that I, I they just kind of leap off the page for me. Blessed. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Chose. God, God chose us to be holy and blameless. Destined. God destined us to be His adopted children and ransomed or rescued. We have been rescued through his son's blood. Does that sound like a God who's going to hold against us our failings? That's going to hold against us our shortcomings? Or a God that's working in our favor? Well, that is what we call grace. Grace. Friends, that's that's the whole gospel story. No no matter who you are, no no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far short you have fallen from whatever standard of perfection that, that you believe you were supposed to live up to or you were told you were supposed to live up to, no matter how deep you've fallen into a hole or a pit, no matter what, God's response to you is grace. That you, you and me, no matter who you are, no matter what, God chose you to be a recipient of grace. That God's chosen you to be God's very own. That God's desire, God's heart is to bless you with God's grace for you, to be, just like John Newton, just like, just like me, a recipient of God's wonderful, amazing, overflowing grace for which there is no limit. This was according to God's good will and plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the Son whom he loves. We have been ransomed, rescued through his son's blood. We have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured over us with wisdom and understanding. Hear me, friends. No matter, no matter how great the error, no matter how tragic the consequence, no matter how grievous the fault, no matter how terrible the outcome, God's grace is greater. God's grace for you is greater than the worst thing you've ever done. God's grace is greater. That's the truth of Scripture. Now, what is grace? The the traditional definition of grace is God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. Let's break that up. God, God is the source. Only God really is the one who is gracious to us. We we can be gracious to one another, but the one who embodies grace, well, that's God. Unmerited, it it just simply means undeserved. Unmerited, that there's nothing you've done to earn it or deserve it so that you can take credit for it. It's, It's a gift, grace is a gift. And and favor means, like when we do each other a favor, that I'm doing something for you. It's something that you may not be able to do for yourself. It is a gift to your benefit, grace, God's unmerited favor. God gives us what we need as a free gift. It's almost too good to imagine, isn't it? That the, the perfect creator of the universe would respond to our imperfection with grace it's almost impossible to imagine almost and yet that's the message that the scriptures give us over and over and over again yes friends we all fall short of the glorious of god this the, the glory of god this summer we've been talking about the great commandment, to love the Lord our God wholeheartedly with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, the truth is, we don't love God wholeheartedly all the time. We don't love our neighbors as we ought to. And sometimes we don't even recognize the truth of who we are as God's creation, God's chosen, God's God's children, and yet, no matter how far we miss that mark, how, no matter how far short we fall from that standard, God responds in grace. A grace that precedes us, a grace that accepts us, a grace that forgives us, and somehow, as in the story of John Newton, somehow, a grace that brings forth good anyway. Let me read one more time, Ephesians 1, 7-8. We have Forgiveness for our failures on his, based on his overflowing grace, which he poured over us with wisdom and understanding. I, I love the two words there, overflowing grace. He could have just left it out. Could have said he, he, we, we have forgiveness for our failures based on his grace. But it's not just any kind of grace. It's an overflowing grace. The other word I like is poured. It's just literally being poured over us. God doesn't just give us enough grace to make up the difference, you know. So if so if you needed an A, but you only got a, a B plus, you know, get a little extra credit to get you there. No, God, God just keeps pouring, pouring grace into our lives that that far exceeds anything that might lead us to believe we fall short. Right? I, I get the image of, of a child. Uh, pouring syrup on waffles on a Saturday morning and they just can't get enough. Or, 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 or asking for more hot fudge on your ice cream sundae. Just pouring on more because more is better. Just think of this wave upon wave upon wave of grace gently crashing over your life. Think about our, our summer rain showers. Just shower after shower, after shower, washing over you, grace upon grace upon grace. Imagine just layers of grace upon layers of grace upon layers of grace. There's this great phrase in the Gospel of John, in, in John chapter 1, verse 16. It's talking about Jesus, and it's, it's from the reference of, of his immediate followers, his disciples. And it says, from his fullness... From Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I mean, that's the image of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I, I, I'm thinking about artists. You know, we, we always see the final masterpiece when, when the work is done, but we don't, we don't get to see the, pro, the process. And you know, every artist somewhere along the way makes a mistake. That's why there's erasers. Or in a painting where they go back and and, and maybe paint over something that isn't just quite right. Fixing, right? Adding detail or or maybe a sculptor who adds a little more clay for something that feels just a little bit out of dimension. Adding another layer of beauty. Another layer of grace. That's what God does in our lives. Uh, This image of, of overflowing reminded me of just taking a shower. I get in the shower after working outside, I'm, I'm dirty, I'm stinky, and sometimes I'm in a hurry, so I jump in, I, I lather up, I rinse off, and I get out and I'm done, I did the job, I washed it off. But there's sometimes that I hang out there a little longer, right, and I just let the hot water run down over my back, I'm clean, but I'm just letting the, the, the good feeling of the hot water wash away the tension of the day and the, and the soreness in the muscles. Don't don't tell the trustees that I'm taking long showers. They might be worried about the water bill. The truth is, grace is a hard concept to grasp. And it's even a harder reality for many of us self-critics to accept. But friends, grace is a fact. You don't receive grace because you've accepted it. You have already received grace. You You get to accept it. We get grace whether we get it or not. I can't explain why God would be so gracious to a John Newton, and I certainly can't explain why God would be so gracious to someone like me or you. But God is. If I take the Christian faith seriously, if I take the Bible seriously, if I take the stories of of Jesus Christ seriously, There's only one conclusion. God's disposition toward us, God's attitude toward us is overflowing grace. My lack of ability, my lack of ability to to comprehend grace, another shortcoming perhaps, in no way makes any difference to God at all. Grace comes anyway. Anne Lamott says, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. I'll leave you with one final quote. The great theologian Karl Barth once said, the result of sin is to destroy human nature. The result of grace is to restore it. So that it is obvious that sin is subordinate to grace. Grace. And that it is grace that has the last word about the true nature of humanity. I'll just leave you with that. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, with God, grace gets the final word. Friends, today's the the end of our Connectability series. Each week, we've given you an ability to try as you connect more deeply with God, with others, and yourself. Today, I want to offer you one that's very practical. Sometimes the reason we feel so much guilt and shame for our shortcomings is because we just carry that around. I want to invite you this week to write on a piece of paper a prayer of confession. If, If you feel guilty for it, write it out. If you think it's a shortcoming, write it out. If you think it's something God might hold against you, Write it down. This is just for you and for God. When you feel like you have exhausted that, if you struggle with this, this, this idea that God is gracious, that God forgives, that God loves, I just invite you, do that exercise. And then once you've completed it, fold it up and burn it. And as you burn it, I'd invite you to do this. Sing the words to Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see.